to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Uh, welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones, the director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. And it is my great pleasure to welcome back uh, David Skuck, who is, uh, until very recently, the, um, let me see if I've got the title here right, <laughs> the uh, digital advisor to the editor of the Boston Globe. However, we're so prescient here at the Shorenstein Center that we picked this day to invite him because today he became the managing editor of the Boston Globe. So here, here. And he keeps his other title as well, as I understand it, in terms um, of supervising yeah, well, the, digital, yeah. the, dig the digital side. David is, uh, was a Neiman Fellow. He's Canadian from uh, Toronto and uh, came back to the United States at the invitation after his Neiman year uh, of the Boston Globe. And he has been doing something uh, that every major newspaper has been trying to do and the Boston Globe has been doing, I think, particularly well, which is to make itself into a modern digital platform at the same time that it continues to be the essential legacy media engine news utility for all of New England. Uh, the Boston Globe, as you know, changed hands not too long ago, uh, passing from the New York Times ownership to local ownership, uh, local ownership being the John Henry, the owner of the uh, Boston Red Sox, who told me that he uh, considered buying the Boston Globe with a bunch of fellow investors, his pals at the Red Sox ownership table, and then after examining it and thinking about it, he decided that it was such a terrible business idea that he, uh, he would not do it, and he backed out of it. And then about a week later, he said he was so nagged by yearning to own the Boston Globe that he decided to do it, but only himself. He did not want to bring other people's money into it. And he has been, as far as I can tell, um, one of those owners who really does have a public service sense of what the Boston Globe is all about. And I can say I believe he was the best alternate uh, owner the Boston Globe could have had. One of the things he has done is uh, to keep some people around that were there and who he had uh, clearly a high regard for, for, and David was one of those. David, we're very glad to have you with us. Thank and, you. Uh, Let's hear what, what's going on. Great. Thank you. Uh, well, thanks all for being here. A uh, couple of housekeeping things. First of all, I feel incredibly honored to be here on <coughs> Alex's second last week. It's almost like being with Derek Jeter at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> uh, Very much like that. <laughs> I, uh, I, um, I'll indulge you in a little story that this, well, this room, actually, I've been in this room many times as a, when I was a fellow, and I see some fellows in this room as well, uh, Neiman Fellows. Um, but this, this room, or this building, has a lot of connection to the globe for me. My wife was an MPP in 2004, and when we first started dating a while ago uh, now, um, she, I, I had kept asking her, you know, what was it like being at the Kennedy School? And she said, well, you can find out for yourself. There's this thing called the Neiman Fellowship that you should apply for. And sure enough, I applied, and, and, I, and I was awarded the Neiman Fellowship. So we can actually tie me sitting at this bill in this at this table directly to my wife's time here in 2004, otherwise I would never have found well, out. Well, I have to tell you that uh, I met my wife my first week as a Neiman Fellow, and she was a student at the Kennedy School, so <laughs> I guess I there's, there's something going on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I guess the, the, the part of the, the, let me first explain how I ended up here. Uh, during my uh, year as a Neiman Fellow, most Neiman Fellows, if you don't know, uh, we get to audit classes uh, in any department, in any schools, where there are professors that will allow us to, and some are more kind than others in doing that. Uh, and I had the great privilege of auditing a class at the Harvard Business School taught by Clay Christensen. Uh, Clay is widely hailed and considered as the father of disruptive innovation, um, which is a theory he uh, created in, in, in the early 90s uh, that really inspired a whole generation of Silicon Valley. Uh, 
in Steve Jobs' autobiography or biography, um, he was cited there as well as being a huge influence for Steve Jobs. Michael Bloomberg has said he was a huge influence for him. Uh, Clay really um, is at the has been at the forefront in the paramount of thinking uh, about disruptive technologies uh, and and how they happen, how they occur, and how we as traditional or legacy businesses uh, can adapt to this disruption. Uh, so when I came as a fellow. Uh, bleary-eyed, wide-eyed, and, and excited, and also really anxious about the future of our wonderful craft, uh, I sat in on Clay's class and was immediately transfixed uh, by some of the theories and ideas that he had uh, put forward. Uh, it really allowed me to see the forest through the trees uh, and gave me great sense of comfort that regardless of whether traditional news organizations survive, journalism will survive and thrive, and that's um, because of the disruption theory, which would argue uh, that uh, disruption happens because of the pursuit of profits, that, that companies move up market uh, as they're constantly pursuing profits. And uh, while that's a bad thing for those companies at the end of the day, because they make themselves vulnerable to being disrupted at the bottom of the market by uh, disruptive technologies that are cheaper, faster, and good enough, um, it actually is good in the case of journalism, uh, at least according to how I interpreted the theory, uh, because for every legacy publisher that um, is, is disrupted, there are new entrants that are coming in that start in the low end and move their way up market. Um, so, you know, in Clay's work, he talks about uh, cars, for example. The Toyota Corona was a car that uh, was created, uh, a cheap, cheaper, faster, good enough car that was created by Toyota at the low end. And then in the pursuit of profits and margins, Toyota moved up market and then ended up making Lexuses uh, which challenged the best of what Europe had to offer in terms of uh, vehicles. Um, in the case of journalism, uh, we argued in a, in a paper that I ended up writing with Clay that the BuzzFeeds of the world, the Huffington Posts of the world, uh, the Voxes of the world now, uh, although Vox started a little bit more upmarket, but um, you, know, you start with cute kittens uh, and you start with aggregation in the case of the Huffington Post, uh, but as you move up market, there is a keen desire and need uh, to grow your margins. And in order to do that, you need higher quality journalism, which brings in higher CPMs, uh, higher revenue, uh, or ad display targets from advertisers. Um, so I came out of that project incredibly optimistic as a journalist that we were going to be OK. Uh, but I also came doubly motivated to try and help traditional organizations stave off uh, this uh, seemingly inevitable uh, demise, uh, and particularly in around, you know, 2008, 2009, all the way to 2012, I felt like there was this widely held narrative uh, of these organizations that there was an era of inevitability to to their demise, and I, I don't feel that way anymore, uh, and I'll I'll talk about why that is. Um, so, uh, as coming out of Clay's class, Clay, and if you've met him, he's an incredibly generous, gracious, kind human being, uh, made. Uh, wise or unwise decision to uh, team up with me and write a paper uh, on how journalism uh, can starve off disruption. And um, you know, it, it basically, I personally wanted to uh, make sure that other journalists and other publications could somehow get some of the same seeing the forest through the trees that I was able to see by taking Clay's class. And that's what came out of that. Um, then uh, I went back to Canada, and I, I did some work for Global News in Canada, um, which is a, a very large broadcast organization there. We, we launched uh, globalnews.ca, which is now uh, the fastest growing website in Canada with 11 sites across the country. Um, and Brian McGorry came calling, uh, the editor of the Boston Globe, uh, and it just seemed like a, an incredible privilege and honor uh, to go uh, to come and, and be a part of an, an organization and an institution that, that uh, isn't just an exciting place to work, but is such an integral part of the fabric of this community. And, and uh, ask any journalist, ask any editor, there's nothing better uh, than, than being in a place where you're, where you're able to do that. Um, and so, you know, when I think about what we've been able to do at the Globe, I kind of frame it in the way of, uh, of, of one of Clay's theories, which is uh, the RPP model. And we talk about this a lot in our paper, but the RPP model is the resources, the priorities, uh, the process, the resources, the processes, and the priorities that you put in place that help frame an organizational culture. Uh, and you know, I've been widely, um, uh, I've widely commented on on the notion that 
as news organizations were disrupted by Craigslist and other things, uh, yes, there were technological reasons for why this happened. Uh, but it would be incredibly naive and arrogant of us as legacy publishers to suggest that we weren't also responsible for our own demise in our structures, in our cultures, in our processes that we have in our newsrooms. Um, and so when I, along with others, uh, Andrew Perlmutter, who was at Quartz uh, and with Atlantic Media launched Quartz, uh, when we joined the Globe, uh, you know, that was our first order of business, the unsexy work of looking at the culture of an organization and more importantly, the foundational structure of an organization and how do you, how do you pivot that to be a more product-centric, uh, user-centric, digital organization. So um, this is really the, uh, the priorities that we're setting on high as part of, um, uh, of, of the RPP model. So um, if you look at a, a traditional news organization, uh, like the Globe, but like many others as well, uh, really, take away the internet. Just forget that the internet existed, and you're left with uh, what was a print factory line. Uh, that's how it was designed. That was how it was built, where you had, um, you know, the newsroom that would be creating the journalism, doing the wonderful work that we do, but then uh, the late night, the page one editor pressing a button at the end of the night, and that entire apparatus then shipping that downstairs or upstairs to the engineers who would put the plates on the printing press and make sure that the machines were all running uh, and that the paper was delivered, ordered, and the, the actual paper quality and everything else. And then uh, it would arrive on the trucks and circulation would then take over. And circulation was responsible for making sure that that was delivered to your doorstep uh, on time, uh, that you were getting your subscriptions, that you were getting your mail and sign-ons, uh, and then advertising and uh, was dealing with the ads and so on and so forth. And, and really, that structure was put in place because it worked for the medium and the platform that we have had in traditional newsrooms, uh, newspaper newsrooms. So once the internet came around, uh, all of these disparate parts of the business uh, grabbed their own piece of it, right? So the newsroom said, well, we know how to do the reporting. We know how to do the digital, uh, how to do the actual news gathering. So we'll take care of putting the, the, the articles uh, and the stories online. Great, that's yours. Uh, the engineer said, well, we're very good at IT and, and understanding how to print this, so we'll take the hosting uh, and the engineering back end and the content management systems, because that's kind of where we work. Uh, and circulation would say, you know, we know how to do e-commerce, so uh, how, to, how to do the circulation delivery <coughs> to you, so we'll take care of e-commerce. And sales took advertising and everything else. Um, that, that was great for a print structure, uh, but in a digital world, um, Actually, I should just add one more point. All of these disparate parts of the business would really funnel up all the way to the publisher. Uh, so ultimately, you have a publisher whose job, rightly so, is to think about how to generate profit and how to maintain sustainability of the organization. The publisher's main motivation is, how do I get immediate returns? And that's what their job should be. So when you have the newsroom, the engineers, circulation, sales, all pitching into this giant uh, uh, bucket with priorities, uh, naturally the publisher is going to pick the priorities that ultimately lead to the most immediate direct forms of revenue. Again, using Clay's theory, it's the pursuit of profits um, that ultimately lead to why these organizations move up market. So in making the priorities at the publisher level all about the most immediate returns and profits and revenues, what are we losing? What is the expense there? Well, user experience gets shuffled down, and producer experience, the creative, the ability for the journalists and the creatives to actually frictionless, to do st frictionless storytelling gets pushed down because honestly, yeah, you know, uh, that, those things seem important, but we've got this client right now and they've got a $50,000 ad buy and that's our focus right now, so we need to make that the priority. And they should have, and I'm being very careful in my words because nobody, nobody goes into any of these worlds and dedicates their lives to news, newspapers or to journalism without trying to do what's best for the organization. So uh, in that environment and in that structure, you are doing exactly what you wanted, what, what you were supposed to do. The challenge is, in the internet, I can write the best lead or nut graph to a story in the world. But if you can't read it on your phone within 0.1 seconds, 
it's irrelevant, it's invisible, and it doesn't exist. And so the priorities of the organization, all of a sudden, if you're going to be a digital product-driven organization, the user experience has to be the first and foremost thing. And you see this. If you're a startup in Silicon Valley or you're a startup anywhere, um, the obsession is with another one of Clay's theories called jobs to be done, which is how am I fulfilling a job in people's lives? The consumer is the most important person in this whole transaction, and how are we making sure that we can please that consumer? Uh, so we, over the last 18 months, or 15 months, have done a, a, a large restructuring at the Boston Globe. Uh, so one of the things that I'm now as part of my title is I'm the general manager of bostonglobe.com. Uh, I'm also in the newsroom as a managing editor, and I'll <laughs> explain why that's important in a second. But uh, as the general manager, I sit at a table every Monday with the head of product, the head of engineering, uh, the head of editorial for bostonglobe.com, and the head of design for bostonglobe.com. Sales and circulation are at that table as well. I don't have direct reporting lines on them for ethical journalistic reasons, uh, but they are very much uh, always at the front and center of my mind in terms of how we are making the e-commerce flow good for our users. Um, so that, that having that meeting now allows us to set the priorities, not at the publisher level, but at the GM level, you have a primary stakeholder who can now make decisions that aren't necessarily uh, driven by profit, but driven by user experience and producer experience. Uh, the belief there is that ultimately, if you create good user experiences, um, and this is a conceit, I will admit, but if we create good user experiences and good producer experiences, ultimately the journalism will be better, and uh, as well the user customer ex experience will be better, and that will in turn drive more revenue in terms of advertising and subscriptions as well. Um, so changing the structure was one part, and part of that changing the structure was Boston.com and BostonGlobe.com being split up entirely. Uh, we had a, a, a bit of a, a confusing brand situation uh, where we had a free site, Boston.com, and we launched BostonGlobe.com in 2011 as a, um, as a, as a paywall site. Um, and this was all before my time, so there are others here, I'm sure, who know more about this than I do, um, but, and can speak to it, but some of the challenges where we were giving away Boston Globe content on Boston.com uh, for free, uh, while then asking people to pay for Boston Globe journalism on another site. Uh, at around the same time, we were looking at removing the paywall and making it a meter instead. And as a meter, uh, it made no sense to have a free site where you can get Globe stories, as well as a metered site where you could get free Globe stories. Uh, so splitting apart the two newsrooms uh, really helped us clarify and define the brands in their own unique way. There are also two entirely separate business models. Uh, Boston.com, uh, relative to its size uh, in the country, from an impressions-based ad-driven news business, website business, has a remarkable amount of revenue, um, on par with some of uh, the big honchos in New York that you would think of. Uh, and that is a really healthy, vibrant Boston.com advertising-driven business. So we don't want to jeopardize that. Uh, and then you have bostonglobe.com, which is a really healthy digital subscription business. Bostonglobe.com has more digital subscribers than any other news organization in North America outside of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I don't count the Financial Times in there. Um, there uh, we have more digital subscribers than the entire Tribune family of newspapers combined. And we do, for the moment, have more digital subscribers than the Washington Post. Uh, although someone may fact check me on that as well. Um, but the point being, these are two very separate, distinct businesses, and we were kind of mushing them together into one particular job for our readers uh, that didn't make quite as much sense. Um, so we split them up. Uh, and so that then leads into the second part of this is, uh, when we think about the resource processes and priorities model of Clay's, um, so when I speak about the priorities, by splitting apart the structure, and setting the priorities from a general manager and publisher level to be about user experience. Uh, the next part about this is the processes. And we've been doing a lot of work around changing our processes in the newsroom. We now have engineers uh, and product managers and designers all in the newsroom. And they employ uh, agile, lean principles uh, of, of web development. So we have stand-ups, sprint cycles every two weeks uh, where we set the priorities for the group. 
Um, they are accountable, they are monitored and tracked on their burn down rate and all the things that digital organizations do. Um, along with that, the newsroom, and Brian sent out a memo uh, last week that, that I'm sure some of you saw, uh, we are really trying to, to move the newsroom uh, towards being a more 18 hour uh, to 24 hour cycle as opposed to where it was naturally always catered to as it should have been for what it was doing, um, which is the print cycle. Uh, so we. You know, we always have this area, this time between the hours of 5 to 7 p.m. where there's a crunch of editing um, to get things ready to close the paper. And uh, we want to reduce that and push it earlier in the day so that there's a more ongoing flow that's more native to uh, the processes and flow of a digital organization. Um, I also think there, you know, when we're thinking about the newsroom workflows, uh, my way of looking at it is we do three different types of journalism. Uh, on our websites. Uh, we do digital first reporting, uh, which is the stuff um, that really is writing off the trends of the day. It's the bloggy stuff. It's the, um, you know, uh, today it would be about um, uh, wage equality, uh, pay equity, uh, given the news. Uh, New York Times had a great story about uh, an employer uh, on the wage equality front uh, who gave up his salary. So that's, everybody's talking about that today. Everybody's talking about Hillary Clinton today. So those kind of stories are the digital first reporting. How do we add something new to, to that conversation that is uniquely Boston Globe-driven journalism and provides a unique perspective? So we're not, we're not necessarily um, you know, just writing about something because everybody else is. We're adding context and depth to that conversation. Uh, and in that constant tide of, of conversation, uh, we're bringing something new to, the, to, to that discussion that's, that's of relevance to people's lives. Um, we have hired uh, two digital first reporters, uh, three actually, um, uh, Evan Horowitz, uh, who does a lot of stuff around policy, uh, Alex Spear, who's outstanding uh, in covering sports, um, James Pindle, uh, who uh, has, we've launched something called Ground Game, which is covering the New Hampshire primaries uh, and all the primaries in a way that is really digital native, and we can talk about that afterwards. Um, and we hope to hire more of those. Uh, uh, digital first reporters who are really focused on writing around the news. Um, then there is the news of the day, the spot news, the stuff that everybody knows and loves about the Boston Globe on a daily basis. Uh, we just got to get that stuff out sooner and quicker. I actually think we do a really good job of that. Um, that was sh uh, demonstrated um, during the marathon bombing um, more than any other time, I think, in any other news organization's history. Uh, I have to say I was remarkably impressed when I arrived at the Globe at just how quickly they are able to get news up online when it breaks uh, and covering it throughout the day. Um, and then we have the enterprise stuff. And that's, that's really the, you know, the, the stuff that, that provides the ultimate user engagement. We find that when we're releasing a story that is a, lo a long investigation or a thoroughly reported piece, um, that piece um, gets incredible engagement time. Uh, people want that stuff, and that's the stuff that they expect from the Boston Globe. And it really is, um, you know, heartening. And, and to your point, Alex, about John Henry, uh, at a time when a lot of news organizations are pulling back on that enterprise stuff, we've actually gone all in on that stuff um, and are really pushing it in, in a huge way. Uh, so what we're experimenting there is release, sch release schedules. What's the best time to release that stuff? Uh, how do we maximize the exposure of a piece uh, for our journalists? Uh, so that the, the journalism is read widely by, by the most amount of people. Uh, and finally, the last part of this whole resources, priorities, processes, and resources piece is, of course, the resources. I've touched on that briefly with some of the hires that we've made, but we're also looking at our content management system, which, um, you know, ultimately, uh, there was a lot of buzz and created when Ezra Klein left the Washington Post uh, and went to Vox, and one of the reasons why he went to Vox, he said, is because of Chorus, their uh, content management system. Um, there is a greater need as you, as you um, have more frictionless journalism and storytelling, there is a greater need to have a content management system that allows for the flexibility that reporters need and want uh, to do their jobs. Um, so whether it's um, you know, improving the content management system, uh, getting better analytics, real-time analytics in the building. Uh, there are other things that we're doing as well. Um, improving the resources that we give our people um, ultimately will help us as well. So when you take all three of those, the priorities, the processes, and the resources, 
Clay would argue, uh, Clay's theory would argue that that is what forms a culture. And the tasks that you do every day in people's lives, when somebody logs on their computer in the morning and starts to write a story, um, that's part of the culture. And how you can change the culture to be a digital culture uh, is one that requires uh, finessing and delicate strategic thought at all three layers. And those are the layers that I've outlined there. So um, I think I've said enough. Um, but I just wanted to touch on some of the thinking around uh, how we are um, transitioning as an organization into be uh, uh, more digitally focused through uh, the, the priorities we set, the processes uh, we go through every day, and, and the resources that we're allocating. I'm going to just ask a couple of questions, David, sure. and then we'll open it. <clears throat> you said that you feel more optimistic than, than, you, than Clay did, for instance. At least that was my impression. What you have described, is this, to your mind, uh, does this really have a good chance of being an economically sustainable model? I think it does, um, because the piece that I didn't really talk about here is our sales team. And we are, if anything, you know, online media is also evolving with this. It's not traditional organizations were evolving on one track and then the portals of the world, the AOLs, the Yahoos of the world, they came around and they really, you know, set a certain economic model for what media and uh, businesses should be. Um, and Huffington Post early on was very much in that game. Um, SEO, first it was the portals where you would go to a destination of a homepage and you would sell display advertising. Then it was SEO, so search engine optimization. What kind of keywords are we putting in? There was the famous example of the Huffington Post writing a story that was one sentence. What time is the Super Bowl start? And it said underneath 6.30 p.m. and that story got more traffic than anything else. Um, that was the kind of the second generation of, of media businesses online. And now we're entering the third generation, which to me as a journalist is the most optimistic, which is the social generation. And that means that it's actually the network effect. It's how are we engaging our readers in such a way that they feel compelled to help us uh, share our, our, our journalism. So there's, there's owned and earned media is, is, how, is the terminology for it. Uh, and the most important one that you want to get is earned. Because if people are sharing your stuff, it's ultimately going to grow traffic and grow, grow business. So the journalism needs to be at a certain level of quality, I think, and ask the, certain, the right questions uh, in order for people to feel compelled to share it. Um, and our sales team is, is, is moving along that path, too. We are really pushing now that we are not in the business of selling impressions. We are in the business of creating experiences. And those experiences don't just live on the website. They live offline. They live everywhere. Um, give me an example. Uh, we did something. We've done it every year for, for the last five years called Munch Madness, which is a, uh, in, in line with March Madness. Um, there is a bracket that our food critic sets up uh, where she pits 64 restaurants uh, in the greater Boston area uh, against each other. Uh, and we have reviews of all of them. And our audience, our readers, get to vote on which ones they want to advance. Uh, and we have a whole social strategy around this project as well. So by the end of it, I mean, it was fantastic to watch where I would see Instagram pictures of restaurants with their specials of the day with a hashtag Munch Madness on the bottom. Uh, and what we're trying to say to advertisers in that process is, look, you're not just getting X number of impressions. And if you want the impressions, yeah, of course you can go to Google and you go get the keyword. You'll get the CPMs and everything else that you want there. But what we offer you as the leading publisher in New England is experiences. And these experiences are not just print. They're not just online. They're everywhere. And you feel like <clears throat> the numbers are such that uh, this is something that will generate the kind of revenues that will allow the Boston Globe to continue its public service mission, which is the journalistic one. I, I'm, I'm not a, I, I, I would, it would be foolish for me to say yes. I was hoping for, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but absolute I, certainty. I, I, I mean, that's the, uh, you know, I often joke with a, a friend of mine who runs um, uh, a Neiman Lab uh, that, you know, Neiman Lab, I love them. They cover a lot of things. And I said, you know, some of the stuff that I wish you would cover are the unsexy things. It's the foundational work. It's the, the grunt work in, in how you change a culture. And, um, I would be incredibly foolish to say that this is all going to lead to the um, solution for journalism. It may very well lead to the solution for the Boston Globe, um, but 
that's about all I'm focused on. Well, given that the Boston Globe was considered to be in the bullseye of the news organizations that didn't have a chance of surviving in this digital world, I would say that's about as optimistic as I could imagine. One question before we go to the opening. Uh, you and I were discussing just before. The issue of civility. Mm -hmm. How does the Boston Globe attract as many of, much of an audience and create that environment of, of, uh, of excitement uh, and at the same time also manage the sort of sense of what is appropriate and not for the Boston Globe? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's two parts of that question, I think. The, the one is the wider role that we play in the community and how we can go about doing that. And I think um, there a lot of that to me is uh, the civic responsibility of thinking about new ways of doing our journalism. And uh, the second part of it is actually the comments that are on websites, and, and we can talk about that too. But the first part, um, for the Sarnayev trial, um, just to give you an example of how we're trying to be that, that convener, um, we created these uh, cards, these, uh, uh, Laura Miko, who was also a Neiman Fellow, um, created these incredible cards uh, that appear on every single Sarnayev story online. And these cards, uh, give you a synopsis of the day in the court, uh, as well as uh, a podcast uh, that was done with in conjunction with WBUR, Kevin Cullen from The Globe, uh, and uh, all the witnesses and evidence that was outlined um, during uh, that day's trial. So you can click on the evidence cards and get a whole list of witnesses and everything else. And um, those cards uh, are not just available on our website. We made those cards available to every single publisher uh, who wanted to take them. Uh, they were embeddable. So uh, I actually <coughs> was a little bit uh, dismayed by it, but we reached out to uh, most of the uh, news organizations in New England who couldn't cover the trial with the same resources and depth that we could and said, here, we're doing this. We're there every day. We're covering the trial. Here's something you can embed on your site or on your articles uh, that can serve as a vital service to your community and you don't have to pay us for it at all. Um, didn't get as much uptick as I would have liked. Uh, I think the competitive juices still run deep. How did deep. the Herald react to this? Um, we offered it to the Herald too. Um, but I, you know, I, I see that as being part of our community mm. role is, uh, and, and you know, as, as Laura so eloquently put it, um, the podcast, the cards, it was all a part of, of, of helping the community uh, um, kind of go through this catharsis of the trial together. Uh, and I think we played a vital role in that, not just in the reporting that we did from the trial, but in some of the digital products that we mm -hmm. built around it. Um, the, the second piece of it is the comments. Um, comments is a long, complicated thing that, you know, I think when news organizations first put comments on their websites, uh, it was thought of as, oh, this is a letters to the editor space that we can just put on our websites and articles. Um, and I think some people who still read those things see them as letters to the editor, which is where they can be so abrasive and jarring sometimes. But I actually think comments serve another purpose, which is um, they are a product and a platform in and of themselves for the community to talk about your stories and talk about the issues in your stories. And whether they're doing that on Reddit or they're doing that on our site, uh, it's a separate product that's not really tied to the article itself. Uh, and I think in that way, when, you, when I view it as that, as more of a... It's just, it doesn't matter whether it's attached to our articles, it's a space for the community to gather. Um, they have uh, more resonance. And I will say, uh, you know, sometimes there are comments that make you weep, um, how beautiful they are. And, and yesterday there was a, we did a story about um, uh, the, the widow of the, of the doctor who was killed at Brigham, uh, in the shooting at Brigham uh, a couple months ago. Uh, she just gave birth to uh, their, their, their baby, girl. And uh, the comments on that story, I, I challenge everybody to read those comments and tell me that, that comments can be uncivil because they were beautiful comments. Let me open this first to uh, students. If you're a student here, uh, yeah. Hi, my name is Natalie. I'm a mid-career student here and my background is journalism. So on Equal Pay Day, my question to you is as journalists are being asked to do much more and you said you your newsroom will be expanding its news cycle as well, what do you think about the pay scale in you know what's happened in terms of declines and are you worried about being able to attract high quality journalists and individuals to the industry? Well, I think we, I can't speak for the industry. Um, uh, I can tell you I think we pay competitively um, and that we, uh, you know, I've, I've, 
it, we've made a lot of hires uh, in the time that I've been at the Globe, and I've yet to have anybody turn us down on, on salary at this point, um, which I know is not an accurate gauge uh, to your point, but um, I, we're creating jobs right now. Uh, I don't think we're, 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 we're eliminating jobs. Uh, we're just creating different jobs. And the other thing I would say is there are so many more outlets out there that didn't exist five years ago. Um, Vox is paying well. Um, you know, uh, Huffington Post <coughs> is doing their thing as well. I know, I mean, this was a conversation a couple of years ago with Patch, and I think it was a more, um, there, was, uh, there was a more concrete argument when Patch was around uh, for journalists, you know, not getting paid at all. Let me explain. Patch is, uh, oh, Patch was a, uh, uh, an, an experiment. Is it still doing? Is Patch exist? It still exists um, at a much smaller scale. It was by America Online, and it was based on the idea that you could have a local reporter doing digital-only stories uh, in any community, and they would be able to write all the local stories, and then you could sell advertising around it, and it would make a, a sort of a large national business out of local news in individual sites. Um, I think it underestimated, one, the difficulty of doing that kind of work in quantity, and two, it underestimated the idea that the local newspapers especially were going to be so asleep at the switch that they were going to allow this to happen without, uh, without competing. So my sense of patch is that it's a place that basically really underpaid and really overworked and has really now mostly gone out of business. Yeah, and, and I actually think, uh, I, I'll pivot your question. Um, I'm at the Kennedy School, so you know how this works. Uh, I, I'll, I'll pivot it and, and, and ask a, a different question. Uh, I was on, um, a, I wasn't at a panel, I was at a conference uh, in Chicago, the Online News Association conference last September, and there was a panel on women in journalism and how do we get more women uh, in the newsroom. And I actually have a more concerning, a bigger concern, which is newsrooms today are not just traditional journalists. They are developers. Uh, They're software engineers um, and product managers and designers. And I am in increasingly concerned at the lack of female engineers um, entering the workforce. And I would say that news or, newsrooms, news organizations, have a responsibility as much as as, as much as anybody, as as much as Kleiner Perkins would, um, to be thinking about um, how we get more women uh, to be engaged in in coding uh, and learning how to be in a newsroom in that sense. That's interesting. Other students, others, yes. Hi, my name is Brendan. I'm an MP student. I wanted to ask you about. Um, how, how legacy publications like the Boston Globe can sort of get their due when uh, newer online-only publications kind of rely on their material. I suppose that's changing increasingly. They're uh, generating their own leads, but when they're relying on material from legacy publications, how you can sort of get your due um, either through credit or even somehow getting, somehow monetizing that when they're relying on your original content. Yeah. I. You know, I, I think it's a, it's like playing whack-a-mole, right? Um, if, if we were to try and uh, go to every um, organization that's aggregating us and say, hey, you should give us credit, um, I, I think that would be a full-time job for me uh, most of the day. Um, you know, and, and you know, it, it's funny, just to illustrate it, when, um, when we wrote about uh, uh, Michael Cranish, uh, uh, one of our DC reporters, had a, an outstanding story looking at Jeb Bush's um, time at Phillips Academy uh, Andover. Uh, and that story was released on a, f we, we, we published it online on a Friday afternoon. Uh, by that Friday evening, it had been picked up by everybody. Uh, it was incredible how hungry those publications are for original journalism. Uh, and so I, I, I don't view it as a, as a threat. I don't view it as a, as, as a challenge to us. I view it as, look, we have a we have a meter, and um, my job is to make sure that the reporting we do and the product we put out there is good enough that you will feel compelled to put out your credit card and sign up. And I'm in awe of the amount of people we get every day uh, who sign up for the Boston Globe digitally. Um, we have 
churn issues that we need to deal with, like any other subscription business. Um, but I don't feel, I, I feel like the, the, the meter for us has been a success. Uh, and um, as long as we're a part of that conversation um, and we're relevant in people's lives, I, I feel like we, we have a pretty good shot. Students. No, Dave. Hi, I'm Dave Weinberger. So this is sort of related. Um, uh, the Times and um, The Guardian and NPR have all uh, put an API on top of their CMS. Is that making sense so far? Because if not, I'll stop. I'll explain. And I'm wondering whether you are looking at that sort of internal architecture um, for your CMS redo. And if so, if you would consider um, making at least some of the metadata, maybe some of the content available um, openly to any developer who wants to use the API to get to it and to build their own application or to integrate it into a site. Yeah, I, I'd be curious to know what kind of, I mean, is it fully Creative Commons? Like, what, what's what's their um, what's their rules on it? Forgive me for not knowing more about it. It's, so it varies and it depends whether it's metadata, which is much more openly licensed. Um, Part perhaps because information can't be copyrighted anyway. Yep. Um, or if it's actual content, most of them um, don't get out much actual content uh, beyond the snippet or description. Yeah. I, I'm open to it. Uh, you know, I, I totally, I think the more people that are working on it, the, the better uh, in the community. Um, I, I uh, and you, this is your world far more than it's mine, I know that. Um, I, I will tell you when I've opened up data sets for people in the past, uh, in other life, in another life, um, the uptick is actually quite minimal. Um, it's great to have it out there. Yeah, it's great to have it out there and say it's out there, and we do it. And I'm happy to have it open, but um, the I've, I've never really seen the, the penetration of people taking it and hacking it into something amazing. Do you think that's going to happen in the future more? I mean, is that going to be something that? Oh, that's Picks a question speed. for David, not for me. <laughs> well, he's been trying to answer it all semester. <laughs> uh, uh, other questions? Yes. Um, sorry, Maggie Kruthbaker. Hi, Maggie. Hi. Um, I'm actually kind of a two-part question. I'm curious what other newspapers you see that are kind of doing a good job of addressing some of these digital issues as you, know, as you guys are. And I'm also curious about how important the ownership structure at the Boston Globe is to your ability to make these kind of changes. Well, I can answer it in one question, which, one answer, which is the Washington Post. Uh, I think they're doing phenomenal work quietly right now, um, and they have a very similar ownership structure than we do. So, yeah. What do you think that Jeff Bezos intends for the Washington Post? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to pretend to answer that. <laughs> well, I thought you might have an opinion. Press the button and the post comes, the Amazon dash button, and it helps you. Drone I, delivery? I, I, I think, you know, it's having the entire stack is, is really a good thing. Um, and, you know, I think having the Washington Post immediately appear on every Kindle, uh, which it has now, is something that we would all kill for. I mean, if, if the Boston Globe could automatically appear on, on every phone, um, on every iPhone, I would say, sure, great, that's a great thing. So. Uh, it's smart. Yes. Hi, I'm Henry Schuler. You mentioned uh, that you're literally looking at the release times of things, and you also just recited the story that you guys put out on Friday, yeah. which, of course, is the classic Sunday front page story mm -hmm. that would be in a newspaper. Um, so at this point, how are you managing that? Is now the digital trumping, you know, sort of the, the classic model for newspaper releases of story? So look really closely at this. Um, I don't, trumping is a word I wouldn't necessarily use because I, what our newsroom is, is, is identifying, and there are phenomenal editors at the Globe, whether it's the Metro editor, Jen Peter, Chris Chimland, who runs the print side, um, they are, even more than me, recognizing and believing in the idea that we aren't a platform-specific business. Uh, we tell stories, we gather atoms of information, and then we release those on uh, the platforms that are most native uh, to tell that story on. Um, so uh, what we find is that um, only one in four of our digital readers gets the newspaper. And, or, uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. Um, of our 
print readers, only one in four logs onto the website on a regular basis. And so that's another way of saying we're catering to two entirely different audiences uh, by releasing it early on one platform. Uh, we're giving that person on that platform an opportunity to read something when they want, which is native to that platform. Uh, and a print reader, have, we have had no indication, let me be more succinct, we have had no indication whatsoever that by releasing stories earlier than how they're published times on print, we are cannibalizing our print audience. Um, and in fact, the opposite. I think there's a job to be done metaphor here of, uh, I personally, I love the print newspaper in theory. Um, but when I get on a Sunday this massive thing that comes on my door, and I love it being massive because it means we had a good week on the advertising side. Um, but when it's massive, there's this anxiety that <coughs> comes across in my world, which is, I gotta read all this before I put it out on, on the recycle bin. Uh, and I feel guilty if I put it out there and I haven't read everything. Um, so why not give people the opportunity to read it when they want? If, we, if it's ready on a Wednesday, pop it on a Wednesday. And then I've actually heard from people who say, I see it on a Wednesday. I know it's there, and then I'll go back and read it on a Saturday. Um, so I just think it's a different, different platforms have different uh, user habits and different expectations, and, and uh, it's on us in our distribution uh, to cater to those platforms, whether it's WhatsApp uh, or Twitter or Medium. Uh, we're experimenting with Medium as well, or whether it's the printed newspaper or the website or in video. I, I think we, we kind of have to just play it by ear. Is that print audience entirely of over the age of 50? Uh, it's not, actually. It's a, it's a, it's a wide swath. Um, um, you know, it, it, it does cater a little bit older, skew a little bit older than our digital audience, but um, not by much. And could you refine what you mean by what, what, what would be native to the newspaper? Um, That's not. Well, uh, I mean, there are certain Sunday like a Sunday Enterprise story may be native to the newspaper uh, if, if we decide on a case-by-case -case basis, but I mean more the form, the form and function of the newspaper that allows you, we had a, a spread uh, the day after the Sarnaya verdict that allowed you to see all 30 counts uh, on the bottom of the page that, um, that Sarnaya had been charged with in a way that was, to me, emotionally effective in telling the story in a way that digital could not do. Um, we also showed online the 30 charges against, the 30 counts that he was guilty of, uh, but it didn't have that same emotional impact as opening up a spread and seeing 30 guilty counts. Yes, sir. Um, you talk about distribution. Can you give us some examples on what you're doing about friction on distribution on one side? Um, and for example, if you want to get the globe in the street, you have to find some quarters to pay for it. Uh, but also on the on the on the meter, like how are you doing? What are you working on to do to reduce the churn rate? And related to that, but on the human side, is how are you dealing, or what are what are things that have worked for you on the empathy side? And what I mean, empathy is that a team that works on print, for example, can put him, his or her self in the shoes of somebody that's in digital and vice versa so we can all understand the important part each of us have, have in this process. Okay. Um, on the empathy side, I'm a firm believer in data. Uh, and I use that. I'm not, and I say I, we uh, as a whole, um, the people who may be pushing for more digital change, we are not uh, doing this just because we want to or because we get it's our incentive to. We're doing it because there is data that backs up our claims. And I feel like it's always healthy to me uh, in an argument that becomes heated with anybody, um, and this isn't just in a newsroom anywhere, um, to have facts at your disposal. Uh, so uh, it kind of takes away some of that, um, whatever tensions there may be there, although I would say our newsroom is healthier than most in this regard, uh, I always like to say, well, what does the data tell us? That's where, where, that's where we start. Um, and we, we know that, right? I mean, A-B testing on everything kind of gives you a good sense of, of where people are going, what they're doing, and, and how they're using it, and all the analytics we have. Um, uh, on the frictionless side with the e-commerce, look, I, this past uh, holiday season, um, I uh, was trying to buy somebody a gift for uh, Netflix. And 
I was blown away at how easy it was. Uh, reminded yet again at how frictionless that process was. Um, if I order an Uber um, and I put my credit card in, within three cl easy clicks, I can even take a picture now and see how frictionless it is to process that. Um, we are working with a back-end database that is complex. Uh, print uh, marketing uh, stuff is really, really complex. And we have to tie that all into our digital product. So what we're seeing on the front end of those payments is um, kind of the um, result of all the complexities on the back end. So this is very boring inside baseball stuff, but there are things that we're doing on the back end to try and reduce that complexity so that ultimately we can provide a front end experience that, that, that really makes it a lot easier for users and gives them that feeling of, ah, thank you. It's worth paying for. Nick. So I really appreciate your comments. Uh, so Nick Sinai, a uh, short scene fellow, uh, just came from four years in the government. And I really appreciate your comments about bringing designers, developers, UX, all of that into the newsroom, uh, because that's exactly the kind of thing that we're trying to do in government as we think about uh, moving to digital services that are uh, relentlessly user-centric. We're just starting around the edges with the new US digital service, yeah. 18F, and et cetera. But I'm, I actually wanted to uh, pivot and ask you about um, uh, data journalism, kind of, uh, kind of how you see that, kind of what you're, what, yeah. what you guys are doing in, in that space, and kind of what, what the future of it is. Um, well, uh, it, in some ways, it's, it's, I, it, what I love about data journalism is it can tell stories that you didn't know were there, right? And there was a Neiman fellow, Philip Meyer, back in the '70s, who really invented the the craft, um, and. I look to that guy and say, you know, I don't think it's changed. I think we just were able to get to more. Mm -hmm. um, but my, my one issue, and this is just my own observation with data journalism as a whole, is that we kind of reach a point of a barrier, which is we are reliant on what the data sets are and what those data sets, what, what data sets people are willing to give us. Uh, in order to really mine the data in a lot of ways. And yeah, we can parse that and, and couple it with other data to, to tell us new stories in third, fourth dimension type ways. Um, but in the case of the government, for example, the Massachusetts uh, uh, lawmakers are, are not that forthcoming in terms of releasing data to us. And when we do FOIA requests and they get stunted um, and held up or we get bills for $3,500 to photocopy pages, uh, it limits our ability to do the data journalism that we'd really like to do. So um, I, I, I say it's great up to a point, uh, and I would love to work with people like you to figure out how we can uh, move that along. Good. Yes? How many people work for the print edition? How many reporters, I mean? And how many work for Boston.com? For Boston.com or Boston Globe? Both, I mean. Um, well, no, no, aren't you talking about three, the print, the online that you pay for and the online that you don't. Oh, isn't that online? Yeah. yeah. For the same yes. Well, that, that, that was my cheeky answer for you, which is um, we have about 250 journalists uh, in, in, in the globe, 250, 260. I'm, I may be wrong on that number. Um, and they all work for all platforms, um, oh, awesome. is, is my cheeky answer. OK. Uh, I have two questions. I think they're the same question, but I'm not sure. Um, so. Are different devices, like a cell phone, an iPad, a laptop, are they tending to draw or attract different kinds of stories? Does the enterprise story, which is of longer length, may have data viz, greater nuance, may it enjoy a greater environment in one device than another? That's the first question. And then the second question is, I guess it's the same one. Um, um, you talked about enterprise reporting and the importance of it, and you scared the bejesus out of me when you talked about that point one second on the cell phone. Because I was trying to picture an enterprise story in point one second. That sort of precipitated that first question, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, my concern, I guess, basically is where is contradiction, where is nuance, where is subtlety and complexity in this environment, and how much of it is constrained by the device on which it shows itself. So when I say 0.1 seconds, I mean specifically the weight of the page. So how many bits are we loading onto your phone in a story 
whether it's a video, a, a, a GIF, uh, a photo, whatever it is, all the multimedia elements and the headers and the, 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 the code, the annual tracking code that goes into loading it on your phone, that's what I mean by the 0.1 seconds is that stuff can slow down the way it loads. And if somebody sees on Twitter or Facebook something that looks interesting to them because their friend has posted it, when they click on that, if it doesn't actually physically load on the phone, um, it's invisible. But that, I guess what I'm trying to say is what we need to be very mindful of, and our designers are, uh, and we constantly push this, is how do we create experiences around that atom of, of news uh, that are most efficient and native to that platform um, so, that, that's, so that your concern and fear doesn't become an issue. Um, that's ultimately what we're trying to do. We're trying to create a frictionless experience so that um, if there is an expose on desktop, I may have you know, 2,500 infographics and videos and all the rest of it because I know on a desktop it can load faster for you. Uh, but when you get to a mobile device, how do we tell that story uh, and, and achieve the same desired effect of that story um, with all the bells and whistles vanished? Um, so uh, that, that's, that's the answer to that question. The, the other piece is absolutely there's form, there's, there's form specific things, um, but there's also uh, social specific things. So if you're coming from a search engine or you're coming from Reddit, your experience uh, and what you want to do on our site, your behavior is very different to if you're coming from Facebook or coming from Twitter, uh, or if you're bookmarked bostonglobe.com and you're coming from there. Each one provides its own unique expectation of the reader. Uh, and this may very well be the exact same person on three different paths in. So what we're trying to figure out is how do we get smarter now in A, being able to detect where you're coming from and serving up an experience that's best for that experience, uh, and B, uh, how do we just detect it? And how do we, um, how do we become more analytically driven in, um, uh, in understanding what the behavior is of someone who comes from those devices? And by the way, that goes beyond just our reporting. It also goes to the meter assets that we could serve up for you. Um, so maybe if you're coming from Reddit, um, you're never going to sign up for the Boston Globe. Your entire job in that visit is to come to the Globe, see the story, and then go back to Reddit and talk about it. So what can we do as part of a value exchange beyond just saying, hey, give us your credit card? Could we you know, ask you to like us on Facebook? Could we have you share us? So these are all questions that we're wrestling with. And how do we make it a more dynamic um, experience when you arrive uh, from your platform? Yes. Hi, David. This is Leslie. Hi. Um, I would love it if you could talk a little bit more about sort of that idea of the value exchange. And earlier when you were answering Miguel's question about empathy and um, using data and analytics to say the reason we're doing this is X. <coughs> so as you're making this transition and sort of using evidence to support all these decisions, how do you think about the metrics that matter? Um, what are they, and how does that translate into business opportunities or revenue goals? Yeah, so I, before I get into the actual specific scientific reasons for why, what data, what analytics we, we look at, uh, I'll first just say, and I should have said this earlier because it's a mistake on my part, the most important metric for me uh, as managing editor is journalistic impact. And I can't, I have a hard time measuring journalistic impact, I'm sure we all do. Um, but I know that if I can grow the amount of people, ultimately, whether it's three people who are influential lawmakers who, who read a story or experience a story, uh, or it's three million people, uh, it doesn't matter as long as I'm reaching the maximum amount of people who had the potential to read that story. Um, and that's a tough nut to crack in terms of how do you identify what that would be. Um, but I think um, that's the most important metric to me. Um, in terms of a subscription business that we have, we kind of look at it on three different levels. It's, it's, we have a conversion funnel, and these are pirate metrics that come into play here, which is at the very top of the funnel, it's about growing our acquisition of audience. It's about how do we get more people to read more of our stuff. So those are your more traditional vanity metrics uh, that we look at. So page views, um, um, you know, shares, uh, the unique visitors, those kind of things. Um, and then as you get deeper into the funnel, uh, it's now about, okay, now that you've arrived on the site, 
uh, how, uh, how much did you engage with it? Um, did you enjoy the experience? So how many, uh, what was the bounce rate once you arrived? Um, how is your path? Are you um, recirculating through to other articles? So page views per visit becomes a bigger metric. Uh, and then uh, depth of visit, so time spent, uh, and how far did you scroll? And then the third metric is obviously return frequency. Um, so if we know that you've, you've come into our funnel and you've had a really good experience, did you come back? Uh, so in that case, it's, you know, return visits and, and uh, did you ultimately subscribe and how many subscribers we have and all the rest of it. Speaking of return visits, thank you for being thank here. You. This was fascinating. I thank you very much.